Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 24th, 2019. On this week's show, we have two guests. Our first guest is the co-author of the very popular new baseball book, and I'm sure it will be a New York Times bestseller. It is the MVP machine, as Travis Sawchick will be joining the show, sharing his findings on how Major League Baseball teams are trying to find advantages in player development, what players are doing themselves in the offseason to improve, like Trevor Bauer and Justin Turner and Mookie Betts and J.D. Martinez, All of these guys that have made these transformations and got themselves better working at driveline or with personal hitting coaches. So we'll learn a little bit more about their secrets and why we shouldn't be paying attention to how the Cubs did their rebuild. Instead, we should focus on what the Houston Astros are currently doing as they are leading the wave of new innovation and player development in Major League Baseball. Our second guest is Chris Swick from Yahoo Sports. We chat about the crazy proposal that Tampa Bay, uh, as far as the Rays, could possibly entertain playing games in Tampa and in Montreal. Major League Baseball admitting that the ball has changed. And Chris will share what he thinks what the White Sox should do in buy, sell, or hold. Later in the show, we'll answer your guys' questions in P.O. Sox. But first, the White Sox lost two out of three in Texas, their final time playing in Globe Life Park. I think it's going to have the same name for the new stadium, but this is the last time they're playing in this ballpark as the White Sox now have a 36-39 and record as they face a very difficult week up ahead with the series in Boston before coming home to face the American League Central leading Minnesota Twins. The big takeaway 
from this series against the Rangers is that Rick Kahn has two messes he has to deal with. Adrisamir Despagne and Yonder Alonso. Joining me to break it down, calling from his weekend getaway in San Francisco, is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. How was catching a game at the Oakland Coliseum? I enjoyed it. Uh, you don't often hear the Coliseum as an enjoyable place to watch a game, or you know, in this case, you know, I went. I was hoping to see both uh, both teams in action, but I ended up touring uh, Oracle Park in San Francisco, so the the A's were the only ones home, so I had to settle for the A's. But you know, it reminded me a little bit of RFK Stadium before the uh, Nationals moved into Nationals Park. They played a couple years at RFK and. You know, it's an old stadium. It's multi-purpose, not meant for baseball, and yet I think it serves the purpose well enough. It's it's cheap. It's easy to get to. The food and drink are okay, and and uh, you know, it's baseball first. And uh, you know, it's a good crowd, and and I generally like the A's. I think you know, as far as American League teams go, I think they'd be one of my alternates. You know, behind the White Sox. But uh, yeah, it was a good time, and I saw a lot of old friends. Not Avi, but. Uh, you know, I saw Semyon, and I saw Fegley, and I saw Soria. So, yeah, it was a, uh, a lot of familiar names. Moving back to the White Sox, let's start with Despagne. He was terrible again against the Rangers. And at this point, I just don't think he's got the talent or stuff to, to sustain any type of success in the major leagues. In three games started for the White Sox, his ERA is 9.45. Oh, wait. That is also what Irving Santana's ERA was after three starts before he was released. Kind of. F- I thought you were going to say that was his whip. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> uh, you wrote about this over the weekend, Jim, on SoxMachine.com. The mess that is currently on Rick Hahn's hands with the starting rotation. This isn't about the future. We know that Kopech and Cease and hopefully of Dane Dunning uh, – heals up from his Tommy John. And at some point in the 2020 season, we may see Carlos Rodon again pitch for the White Sox. This question is focused on what the White Sox could do maybe in the next month, as long as they keep delaying the call up of Dylan Cease. How do you think Rick Hahn will handle Despagne and what are the solutions that he has for the starting rotation? Well, it seems like Despagne made his last start uh, when when the you know, Rick Renteria had to answer about it. He said he's here until he isn't, which really isn't a ringing endorsement. Uh, you know, and when it comes to White Sox starters and, and cutting veteran players, maybe not players who are demoted, but you know have uh, maybe a, a, a second and third chance ahead of them. When it comes to these final cuts, they generally speaking don't telegraph it. They 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 let you read the writing on the wall and then decide to. Uh, ultimately make their statement with the final roster move. And I think with Dylan Covey throwing on the side on, on Sunday and, and uh, perhaps a sequence of roster moves to be made. Yeah. I think they'll wait until they cut the Spanier before they actually say that they're going to, and, and, and explain why they did it. But no, there's just really nothing there. He got two swinging strikes and, and 68 pitches. Uh, you know, his fastball command isn't there. And also his fastball is very hittable, but also like, you know, he can't really use it to get ahead can't really pitch backwards his off-speed command isn't there and even when he tries his bag of tricks with his slow curveball and quick pitching his quick pitch got hit his slow curveball and changeup 
Uh, you know, even when the Rangers got their front foot down well ahead of the pitch getting there, they were able to keep their hands back and just poke the ball, you know, line drives into uh, center in the opposite field. So there was just really nothing working for Despani. And I think, you know, after the one start where he just kind of coasted by on, uh, you know, what he has, teams either scouted him, you know, reacquainted themselves with the scouting report or just, you know, happened to see worse pitches and, uh, you know, they're just being put in play. I think when you just don't get many uh, swinging strikes, you get more line, you get more uh, uh, outfield assists than you do strikeouts. I think that's pretty troubling. And I imagine uh, once Covey is, you know, whether or not Covey is ready, I think they really can't go to Despania again. So if Covey is not ready, and if you don't think they can go back to Despania, which right now his next probable start would be Friday night against the Minnesota Twins at home, what will Rick Hahn do? Who would be pitching in Despanier's spot? I think at this point, um, well, I, I would prefer trying the opener. Uh, they have Hector Santiago. They just signed him to a minor league deal uh, after he was let go by the Mets. And you know, when, when the Mets let go of any healthy functioning pitcher, I, I tend to think that uh, that pitcher really is nothing because the Mets could use all the arms they can get. But when it comes to uh, you know what uh, Santiago gave the White Sox, Last year and what he looked like in uh, AAA as a starter before he got called up to pitch out of the Mets bullpen, it does seem like there's like a working possibility to where, you know, between, you know, Covey uh, throwing four decent innings and with Santiago throwing, you know, an inefficient four to five innings if he, you know, can resemble his old form, they seem like pretty prototypical second pitchers, you know, to come in after an opener, face the second half of a lineup and try to get by without facing a lineup three times. So it seems like, you know, there, there are a couple of guys who are well-equipped to handle the, uh, you know, second pitcher duties. And then, you know, whether you pair them with a Juan Manaya up front or either Jace Fry or Aaron Bummer, whatever you want to do with uh, Kovey, you know, matching left to right or right to left, uh, they have the possibility, just for whatever reason, we've talked about this before, you know, many times, that the White Sox seem to think they're too good for an opener or they consider an opener a, a another term for a bullpen day, but you know, uh, Despagne starts. You know, giving him starts is basically another term for a bullpen day, when he only goes three plus, and, and you need uh, the relievers to uh, be able to patch together five to six innings afterwards. I mean, that's really no different, except uh, you know, you just had a you, you hope for better out of the first pitcher. So I think you know, if if you have a reliever going one inning, and then you have that Despagne Covey. Santiago, uh, you know, spot starter type, you know, coming in after. I don't really get what the material difference is, except that you don't face the top of the order uh, three times with that guy. So it really seems like they're due to experiment with an opener. And if they don't, I really don't get uh, what their aversion is. You could use Carson Fulmer as the opener. He threw a clean inning against the Rangers today with two strikeouts. Yeah, that's not a bad, yeah, that's not a bad idea, uh, especially since, you know, with his brand of success and, and yeah i didn't get to see him pitch today but i saw that he threw 11 to 14 pitches for strikes which is really you know <laughs> as efficient as he gets in most pitchers but i think even if he throws one of his trademark scoreless innings that takes 28 pitches you know that's fine you know that's that's he's still serving the purpose no matter how many pitches he throws so yeah that's you know between him and Manaya, i think you have a couple guys who can set up a left-handed uh second pitcher whether it's somebody like santiago or you know, if Banuelos gets healthy again and, and returns to the pitching staff, you know, he could do it too. Now, moving over to Yonder Alonso, in 65 games now, he's hitting 178 with a 276 on base percentage, slugging 304. Alonso had a costly error that extended the second inning 
in which Nova would later give up a home run. So instead of making the play at first base and then ending the inning down two to nothing, a couple batters later, Nova gives up the two run homer and now it's four to nothing. And when the White Sox were down five to four with runners on second and third with one out, Alonzo couldn't put the ball in play. And when you look at his splits, these splits are stupid. Against left-handed pitching, Alonzo's hitting 262 with a 380 on base percentage, slugging 524. Small sample size and 42 at bats. Against right-handed pitching, Alonzo's hitting 157 with a 250 on base percentage, and he's also slugging 250 and 172 at bats. Jim, what are the White Sox going to do with Alonzo? When it comes to Yonder Alonzo and and with you know, just his entire existence on on, on the White Sox, yeah, you know, I didn't have high hopes for him coming in. I, I likened him to Adam LaRoche just when it came to his hitting profile of somebody who hadn't been uh, really good in a couple of years and, and you know, limited to first base. Somebody who could hit homers but didn't really hit extra base hits, and so when you have like an offense first guy, you want a DH to have a you know, bring in a guy who's never had fifty extra base hits in the season. I just didn't like the look of it, didn't like the uh, way he was shiftable, slow, you know, things that Adam LaRoche was. And I remember when I wrote about the the Adam LaRoche signing um, back when that happened, I really should have been more assertive with my, uh, uh, you know, my distaste for it or, or, or the bad feeling I had about it. And I remember, you know, saying like, you know, don't really get what there is here, but, you know, maybe this is a boring signing that will fit the White Sox needs. And it turns out there was the absolute disaster. So this time around, I kind of learned from it. And I said, like, oh, I really don't like this one bit. And, you know, it works if Manny Machado signs. If not, uh, this really seems like a waste of time. And uh, sure enough, it's 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 trending that way. But I really don't know. And, and I saw, I, I think it was Mark Hope uh, tweet this, that, uh, you know, he's got a charity event coming up. Um uh, with the White Sox, and, and maybe that's one reason why they're just kind of holding on and, and, and waiting for him to go. But uh, I, I really don't get uh, you know what they're hanging on for. There's really no value to be had. They're, they're not going to be able to recoup any trade value for them. They're, uh, they have guys at AAA. Daniel Polk is hitting again to where they can just give them at bats, and, and that would be a more enjoyable use for them. You can rotate outfielders through there. There's a lot going on, and, and, and Yonder Alonso, you know, when he's not fielding and he's not hitting, and uh, I, I think, you know, the error is just poorly timed, but it's also kind of underscores the whole thing where he's just not offering the White Sox anything. Seems like it's, it's uh, you know, it's been time to move on, and, and this would be, you know, I guess it's kind of kicking him while he's down, but still just like he's just been down. And I don't see, I don't see anything in his game, Jim, to give encouragement that he's going to bounce back. Yeah, it just, you know, it seems like uh, uh, the exit velocity isn't there. The, the solid contact, he's getting jammed or it's off the end of his bat. It seems like he's almost like hitting uh, hitting the ball with a whisk. You know, it's like a, they're full <laughs> swings and, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, he's getting decent trajectory on him or the kind of home run trajectory. But then, you know, they cut from the uh, center field cam and the cam behind home plate tracking the ball. It's just like this shallow fly ball that gets you know flagged down either by the infielder or you know, the outfielder charging in and calling him off just there's no impact to his contact and and so i think you know just there's uh yeah when he's not squaring up the ball and he's hitting the ball into shifts can't really call him unlucky you know at this point i think there was an argument maybe when he had a really small sample size in april that you know he might have been one of the unluckier hitters in baseball but when you're left-handed and and you hit in the shifts and you're slow and now the 
the, the quality of contact is drying up. There's just nothing going for him. There is a big gap, though, in his weighted on base average on facing changeups. But his fastball and curveball, you don't see that gigantic difference between his weighted on base average and expected uh, weighted on base average. And he's hitting like 115 against breaking pitches. He he can't hit the breaking ball. He can't hit the breaking ball. His exit velocity is in the 37th percentile of Major League Baseball, which is another way of saying it's below average. You got a first baseman who has below average exit velocity, who can't hit a breaking pitch, and suddenly can't hit right-handed pitching. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't know what you're doing there. Like, I, I, I really don't. Other than trying to give him as long of a leash, Jim, to save face, because if Rick Khan cuts him this week, let's say they DFA him before, and it's because it's a halfway. We're halfway done when we have next week's podcast. The White Sox will have 81 games in. Uh, then everyone's column in memoriam of Yonder Alonso's career with the White Sox is how poor this trade was as far as the idea and the thinking behind it and what the White Sox got out of it. it it's kind of weird to say, but Cleveland may have won this trade and the only thing they're getting out of it is saving $9 million. Yeah. I, I guess Alex Cole is back. And when I checked it, you know, a few games into a season, he was hitting okay. But yeah, that's, you know, the whole purpose of the trade when it came to who they're trading with and how they were blocking off uh, DH for a guy who wasn't an elite bat and, and could only play first base in DH and was helping out a division rival by providing salary relief for a player that uh, wasn't in their plans. Just didn't make sense. It really only made sense as a you know as a way to lure Manny Machado to the south side. And I kind of, you know when it, when it came to the way that the Machado sweepstakes unfolded and the way the White Sox came up short and the way Jerry Ryan sort of came up short, you know, uh, I think I can kind of understand where Rick Hahn was coming from and just like well if he had a feeling that you know Reinsdorf might kind of pull the rug out from under him, you at least want to see like well maybe I can. Uh, have some safeguards in place to where if they don't have top dollar, he still might accept it. And, and I can see that being a somewhat creative defense. I guess I would argue seeing how short that Reinsdorf came up that putting all the eggs in that basket was kind of dumb anyway. But you know, I can at least understand it, it was a uh, a somewhat creative attempt to try to get around uh, ownership's um, uh, limited imagination and limited willingness to swim in the deep end. So uh, I think if they let him go, then I could see it being a failed trade and and the whole thing will be like, well, Manny Machado's friend didn't work out. What a disaster. But I think at this point you can say like, well, it was you know, the, the NBA style gambit to load up a roster with friends in order to lure him didn't work. Um, oh, well, you know, I guess that's where I would leave it. Like they, it was clearly about trying to get another player onto the team. They try to make, they try to sell it otherwise, but I think, if they don't protest that too much and say, like, uh, you know, ultimately let people think that, uh, you know, Macha- uh, uh, Alonzo was there to get Machado and Jay was there to get Machado and, and neither player worked out. Uh, I think that's more defensible than actually thinking that they're acquiring a good player. <laughs> like, I think they're better <laughs> off letting fans and, and media believe that it was to get Machado. I think that's the more defensible reason for the acquisition and, you know, not panning out, uh, you know, because Alonzo was really only there for a year. Jay's only in the plans for a year. And then the rest of it was going to be on Machado's terms, you know, letting him define the deal. So 
I, I think if they let that, yeah, the, the sooner they cut him and the sooner they let everybody think that Machado was the reason, I still think it was the reason, um, the less that they, their, I guess, talent evaluation and ability to uh, uh, pick players who are on the wrong side of their careers. Um, yeah, I think the less they let fans focus on that, the better. Well, we're going to see what the White Sox do. Hopefully we will get some as far as settlement on Despagne and Alonzo situations this week. Despagne, I agree with you, Jim. I think he's made his last start with the White Sox. But I think Yonder Alonzo is going to stick around a little bit longer with the White Sox, even though it doesn't really make much sense. But for the Chicago White Sox, they're now traveling from Texas to Boston as they will be facing the Red Sox this upcoming week. It is a Monday through Wednesday series. And if you forgot, I don't blame you if you did. The Red Sox won three out of four in Chicago earlier this season. Complete blowouts uh, in the wins for the Red Sox. Their win-loss record on the season is 42-37. and 37. They are eight games back of the New York Yankees in the American League East. They are one game back of Cleveland for the second wild card. Cleveland's won eight of their last 10 games. So Cleveland is on a good stretch of baseball. They are 42 and 35 on the season. In the last 10 games for the Red Sox, they are seven and three. So they're starting to heat up and start playing better baseball. Your pitching problems for this series on Monday at 6 10 p.m. Central Time. It is Lucas Giolito trying to bounce back from his poor start at Wrigley Field against Eduardo Rodriguez, in which the White Sox have a terrible time against him. On Tuesday, 6 10 p.m. Central Time again, bullpen day for the White Sox against David Price. And on Wednesday, this is an afternoon tilt at 12 10 p.m. Central Time. It is Ronaldo Lopez against the Condor, Chris Sale. Jim, the Red Sox whooped up on the White Sox the last time these two teams played in Chicago. Should White Sox fans prepare for more one-sided games this week? Uh, I think it's quite possible. I think, you know, I'm hoping Giolito shows up a bit better than he did against the Reds. I think he pitched fine. I think the bullpen caved in afterwards and and the game got out of hand. It was one of his more mediocre starts, but he wasn't the reason why they got blown out. Uh, yeah, I guess the hope there is he bounces back. Bullpen day, who knows? Uh, Lopez, who knows? I think, uh, the, the good news is that the Red Sox are a bit, I guess, a little bit wobbly themselves. I mean, Rodriguez is one thing with the White Sox history, but Price has had a little bit of issues with fatigue and sales come down from his really hot streak and uh, he's been a little bit more touchable as of late. So there are opportunities for the White Sox to score some runs too. And I think you know, I'm kind of hoping, uh, you know, if it's going to be, if, if the pitching staff's going to have a hard time containing the Red Sox offense, I at least hope they give it back to them and get some, some sloppy games and some uh, ugly scores. But I think they can take one of three. Now for this 15-game stretch that the White Sox were on, again to back up from their home series against the Yankees, starting there and then at Wrigley, and then they just finished in Arlington against the Rangers. And with these six games coming up against the Red Sox and Twins, right now the White Sox are four and five. And if you remember what our predictions were, Jim thought the White Sox could go seven and eight, and I thought they would go five and ten. Right now the White Sox are four and five. So Jim, you just need them to go three and three this week, uh, be able to win one of these series against the Twins or the Red Sox, and you and you are right on. Me. The White Sox need to fall on their face, <laughs> go one in five, uh, in order for me to hit my prediction of five and ten, and hopefully they do not go one in five this week. So I am rooting for you, Jim. 
uh, for them to at least finish 500. Are you confident that they can do it? Can they win one of these series against either the Red Sox at Fenway or at home against the Twins? Well, I wouldn't say I'm confident. I, I think I made that prediction thinking that the White Sox are hard to peg right now. They have some really big offensive showings, and I think they, you know, when you look at the offense and you know, there, there's an offense that has at times, you know, six capable hitters in it, which is pretty good, especially relative to White Sox offenses as of late. And depending on, you know, the, the bullpen is pretty solid. So if you can get a starter to get six innings, uh, you know, there's the possibility of, uh, you know, having a, a, a way to keep the other offense in check. So I think they, you know, it's, it's really sloppy right now. And, and the way that they've been able to keep 500 within reach with only having one reliable starter is pretty remarkable. So that's why I guess I tend to bank on them, or, or at least in this case, this 15-game stretch, I bank on them just being weird rather than being good. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the wheels could fall off, but I think uh, you know if the White Sox are to follow form and confound the both of us, they'll probably win six out of uh, 15, and neither of us will be right. <laughs> Please win some games this week, White Sox. It'll make, it'll make Sox Machine Live uh, much more enjoyable on Wednesday. But, Jim, enjoy the rest of your trip. I look forward to us recapping the Red Sox series in Sox Machine Live on Wednesday. Sounds good. Uh, have fun with uh, Travis and Chris and all the wonderful questions we get. Yes, and they are very good P.O. Sox questions. So you guys definitely want to stick around for that. But coming up next... We do sit down with Travis Sawcheck, co-author of The MVP Machine, to discuss the advancements in player development in Major League Baseball next in the Sox Machine podcast. Before we speak with Travis, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way in buying tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd, and this is how they did it. First, they focused on customer satisfaction. They have over 50,000 five-star reviews in the App Store, and the way that SeatGeek works, they pull together millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10, and they display them on an interactive seat map, so you can get a good idea of what your view is at the stadium before purchasing great if you're visiting a new stadium or a new concert venue and you have no idea how the setup is and they break down the details the green dots mean those tickets are good deals buy those tickets red dots stay away those tickets are overpriced and a nice feature that i like about SeatGeek, you can include pricing with fees there is no sticker shock when you are shopping you're not finding $50 add-ons when you get into your shopping cart instead SeatGeek displays the pricing with the tickets and fees included to make your purchasing decisions much easier and I use SeatGeek all the time especially buying Chicago White Sox tickets I bought nine tickets for the upcoming White Sox Cubs game I'm thinking about getting tickets for 4th of July against the Detroit Tigers they have some great deals this upcoming weekend as well with the Minnesota Twins arriving you get tickets as cheap as $22 for Friday. For the 312 game on Saturday, you get tickets as cheap as $15. And on Sunday, you get tickets as cheap as $14. And the best part is that Sox Machine listeners get to save $10 off your first purchase. All you have to do is just download SeatGeek app on your phone and use promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE to save $10 off your first purchase 
on SeatGeek. One of the best books I've read about the game of baseball is called The MVP Machine, and it takes you on a journey of player development and how it's making a great impact, embracing the science of the game. Joining us is the co-author of The MVP Machine and contributor to The Athletic and 538, it's Travis Sawcheck. And hello, Travis. It's an honor to have you on the show. It's great to be with you. When you and Ben Lindberg decided to go on this journey, writing the MVP machine, what was these? What was the story that you were originally trying to tell before diving deep into what teams are doing on the player development front? Yeah, I first became interested in this idea from the, the hitting side. I, I used to cover the Pittsburgh Pirates for a newspaper in Pittsburgh, and back in 2013, they'd traded for Marlon Byrd, who uh, he'd been playing under the cloud of you know, steroid sus- suspicion and suspension. But that year, he'd actually changed his bad ball profile. He'd gone from a ground ball to a fly ball hitter, and you know that had nothing to do with whatever he had done or put in his body before. Uh, so that, I found that to be very interesting. This this change he'd made with the swing because I had up until that point, I thought once you're a major league veteran, you know, you've kind of hardwired in your swing since you're an amateur player, since you're a kid. And that's going to be a really hard thing to rebuild on the fly successfully. Uh, and I learned about this outside hitting instructor named Doug Lotta he'd worked with. And you know, it was all very, that was very interesting to me. That opened my eyes. And, you know, uh, and when I was, Asking those questions, it was Justin Turner who went to work with Doug Lada after that 2013 season. And look what happened with his career. So, uh, so then I began to think, well, maybe talent isn't fixed, and guys can change their abilities way more than we ever thought possible. Just over the ensuing years, there are more and more of these stories. There was Rich Hill on the pitching side and J.D. Martinez. Uh, so more and more of these stories kind of accumulated. And uh, in the winter of, I guess it was. Uh, 17, 18, Ben and I kind of independently, we have the same agent had arrived at this idea at the same time. And she suggested we work together and we thought that'd be a good idea. And we, uh, we dove into this and interestingly, although I started on the, the hitting side of this being an interest, I became very interested in the pitching side of this and pitch design and velocity creation and all sorts of things to build a pitcher. Uh, and that's sort of how we arrived at this book. It, it has been a journey, but a, a fun one. Uh, to pursue. Yeah, and it challenges everything that I thought I knew about the game of baseball. Chapter one is called Savior Metrics. And as you, you, you touched on a few names like Justin Turner and Rich Hill, but the Dodgers, they've been going to the World Series with players like Max Muncie, Turner Hill, and Chris Taylor, all players that we thought were washed up and other teams that gave up on them. In your research, is this what you found teams spending the most effort currently is to, quote unquote, save players or try to discover new ways to develop their skills to maximize these types of players like the Turners and Hills uh, as far as their performance level on the field? Yeah, I think the best clubs are realizing the probably the most efficient way they can spend a dollar is in player development and getting more out of players. And you look at the Dodgers, you look at the Astros, who are probably you know, two of the favorites to meet in the World Series this year. I, they're at the front end. The Astros we put forward as the ideal model to follow. And I think we'll probably talk about them a little more in detail. But you look at those two clubs, they're at the cutting edge of this, they're investing in this, and they're getting more out of guys. Like you mentioned, Chris Taylor, Max Muncy, no one had ever heard of uh, before last season. Uh, the Astros not only have a, a great major league team, they also have a great minor league system, and that's not supposed to happen at the same time. 
uh, but they're getting, whether it's pitch design, pitch usage, swing change, understanding the most efficient swing plane for a hitter, uh, you know, they're getting more value out of the guys in their system. And I used to kind of think is like the draft and development process is the draft and you know, international free agency being much more important than whatever happened, whatever coaches said, whatever they did. But this book and this process of reporting that really, I kind of, I really pivoted on that thinking where uh, now I think whenever, you know, wherever you're drafted, uh, you know, talent obviously plays a role in how successful someone's going to be, but the development process is really so important today. And that's where the best clubs are creating a huge advantage. Yeah. As White Sox fans were bragging about that Luis Robert is ranked fifth on MLB Pipeline's top 100, but the Astros have the ninth, 10th and 11th ranked prospects (laughs) on top of a team that's going to win a hundred plus games and just, you know, for any fan of any team in the American League, it's a bit overwhelming when you look at the Houston Astros, Travis, and be like, do they have a window or is this some unstoppable machine like the New York Yankees that everyone else in the American League has to try to figure out and topple? And I think this was the most important chapter for me reading the book, and it's called We Are All Astronauts. And it does go in detail on what the Astros went through with the rebuild and their efforts in player development and embracing as far as the data. There's a lot to take away in their techniques, usage of the data, new equipment, and approaches both on the mound and the batter's box. To start in the batter's box, though, I thought it was a very interesting story about how the Astros helped George Springer. You know, for everyone outside of Houston, when we look at George Springer, we just think, well, he's a star. And the Astros got lucky to have George Springer. And when you put him in a lineup with Alex Bregman and Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa, yeah, any team would be great. But it seems like the Astros even made tweaks with Springer and his approach because he was striking out more than 25% of the time in the minors. Now it's fewer than 20%. And he's also increased power in his contact. How did George Springer do that? <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, it's an amazing story because you think back to uh, Moneyball, which will always be in a category by itself. It changed the way we think about the game, front offices are built, and all sorts of things. But there are a lot of things that were wrong in Moneyball, and one of them is that you can't teach play discipline. Uh, what we saw with Springer, you can. And through, uh, you look at what the Astros have just done in an era when strikeout rates are seemingly on an unstoppable march to greater and greater heights. They've had success in raising walk rates, lowering strikeout rates, uh, not just with Springer but across the board. And you know, they're doing it with uh, technology. You know, they show guys where their issues are. They map their swings with blast motion and K-Vest, and they just understand the, the biomechanical properties of what they're doing and what they should be doing. But they're also borrowing the best ideas from, uh, from anywhere. And I think that's one of the most important things about the Astros story is they didn't come up a lot with a lot of these ideas or technologies on their own. They found them elsewhere. They found them... Uh, you know, whether it's the D, low D1 where they hired Russ Steinhorn because they found him at Delaware State. They noticed in a SI faces in the crowd that Delaware State had this unreal on-base percentage and they were leading, lead, they were leading Division One in hit by, an on-base percentage hit by pitches. So they're really curious how Steinhorn taught on-base percentage. So they hired him. No one ever hired him from Delaware State straight into pro baseball. Uh, so they used some of his teaching practices in their system, and then they they hired a lot of college guys, which was very uncommon to to fill player development in minor league roles. They wanted new, interesting ideas. They jumped on board with the technology. 
more than any other club. And while it's not uh, necessarily used uh, primarily for hitting, like the Edutronic camera, which uh, Trevor Bauer and his dad really deserve credit for bringing into the game, the Astros are the first team to take that tech, that high-speed camera technology to scale. And uh, while most teams were experimenting with their first Edutronic high-speed camera in spring training this year, maybe half the league, uh, the Astros had 75 of these cameras hard-mounted throughout their system at every stadium, had you know roving evaluators carrying these. I think the biggest thing you take from that is pitch grips, how guys release balls. You can actually see how fingertips and parts spin. But you can also it's also useful useful for batting mechanics, seeing how the hands move, how the barrel works. Uh, so they're just at the front end of how to teach. Uh, and that's what's, I think, so important com- in concert with the technology, and that's how they're able to do things. Uh, like make George Springer, who we thought was already a very good player and probably near ceiling, even better. And you know, they're just stories like this throughout their their system. You look at a lot of the – we've got minor league stat cast data from another club, and you look at most the underlying characteristics you'd want, whether it's fastball spin rate, curveball spin rate on the mound or velocity, or it's fly ball percentage – uh, line drive percentage, launch angle, exit velocity. The Astros are at the top or near the top in all of these categories throughout their minor league system, and they're just uh, they're just teaching this better than anyone, and it speaks to uh, just the power of, of this movement. And it's just not on the hitting side. As I mentioned, the pitching side, when they acquired Justin Verlander, I thought he was nearing the end of his career and approaching toast territory. Like, he just had a few innings left, maybe half a season of being a quote-unquote ace, and then because of his age, he would he would fade. Uh, however, that hasn't been the case. Verlander might be pitching at his best in his entire career. And in the book, it also talks about the meeting with Garrett Cole and how for two years the Astros were trying to acquire him. And when they both got Verlander and Cole, they made them sit in these conference rooms with the coaches and analysts. And and the book goes in detail on these analysts telling Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole which pitches are ineffective, which is a bit mind-blowing because these two were already great starting pitchers. Do you know if all teams are having these types of meetings or is this just something that the Houston Astros are doing differently than anyone else? Yeah, I, they are doing it differently because even Garrett Cole said he'd never been part of, of a meeting that was uh, so compelling. Uh, and he was with the, you know, most teams are pretty data savvy nowadays, and he's with the Pirates, and I'm sure they had all sorts of video and heat maps to show him. But he said no one kind of presented the information in a compelling and digestible way like the Astros did. And they showed him his best performing pitches they showed the video i'm sure they showed him the edutronic camera of any video they had of his best grips uh where they told him to get rid of his two-seam fastball which the pirates had him throwing which was demolished in you know in uh 2017 so and i think it also helped that he saw you know a verlander have success there so the buy-in buy-in helped but uh even with verlander they showed him the high-speed camera footage of his uh of his best sliders thrown and that helped him uh really replicate that grip more often. And a lot of this is about smarter practice and preparation. You're not with a high-speed camera in Rapsodo, for instance, it allows you to see how you're imparting spin on the ball, how that's affecting the spin axis and spin rate and resulting movement. So instead of searching, you have the evidence of your best pitches right in front of you. And it's just a mess. And it really cuts down that feedback loop. Uh, so that's part of what made this all effective. But yeah, they had these very successful meetings. They, show guys a very smart approach, what they should be doing, how to optimize their skill set. 
And, it, you know, it's like you snap your fingers and these guys transform. Uh, Ryan Presley is another example from the book where he was uh, kind of a mid-lane reliever with the Twins, He's, but he had a great spin rate. Uh, and the Astros acquire him. They tell him to throw certain pitches more, certain pitches less, use these locations more, use these less. And all of a sudden, he's the best reliever in, the, in all of majors in the second half of uh, last season. So it, it really, I mean, some of this seems like magic. I would argue just physics. But, yeah, it is remarkable, some of the, the turnarounds. And, you know, Major League Baseball, every team is now aware of this, and they're going to try to replicate the Astros. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how quickly – uh, you know, that gap is closed. But the Astros have a huge head start. I, I know speaking to another, with another executive, with another club, they feel like the Astros are, they have like a seven year uh, head start on the rest of baseball, given the, the, the strength of their system and what they have at the major league level. So it's, it's going to be tough to, you know, catch up with them. I, I do think the gap will close, but they have a huge head start. They're loaded with talent. They have a lot of best practices. Uh, maybe the thing that will help the American league is a lot of the front office broke up over the winter. Uh, we see Mike Pass in Atlanta, other ex-officials in Baltimore. So maybe that'll uh, cut down the advantage a little bit. But the infrastructure to sustain this is in place in Houston. Yeah. If you can't beat them, hire them, I guess. That's the saying in Major League Baseball. Uh, you know, one common talking point, speaking with other bloggers and podcasters that, that read the book, uh, is there's a lot of Trevor Bauer in this book. And it's it's a great telling of his journey on how – he tried to make himself the pitcher that he is today from someone that won the Golden Spikes Award at UCLA and then went through his struggles with the Arizona Diamondbacks and, and his work at Driveline. Uh, Bauer does have a very abrasive personality, as we are seeing this week in his Twitter spats uh, with some other national baseball writers. Do you get the impression, learning from Bauer and speaking with him, that despite his ability to produce on the mound and his clear eagerness to improve his entire pitch arsenal and tried to be a perfectionist, uh, maybe even more than that, uh, that teams maybe in the future may avoid acquiring Bauer because he doesn't play well with others. I, I mean, he's he's a he's a divisive personality. Uh, there's no doubt about it. We we all know the social media history. Uh, you know, I felt for the book that you could not write about this movement without Bauer being involved. He's so important to it. Uh, but will teams, will they hesitate to acquire him? I don't think so. Uh, and I think one reason is you look how he's helped teammates around him, whether it's Shane Bieber, Mike Clevenger. Uh, the young pitchers in the Cleveland staff have gotten better, and they'll tell you Bauer had played a role in that. I mean, each individual deserves most credit for their success, but you know, Bauer shared what he believes are best practice with Clevenger and Bieber and anyone willing to listen and approach him. Uh, he tried to help Neil Ramirez uh, develop a curveball that wasn't a success story, uh, but it does show that he will try to help teammates get better, at least those interested in speaking with him. Uh, so I think if you're a team looking to acquire him, uh, you probably wish he didn't have a social media account, but you do understand what he brings it around. He has had a real impact on bringing change to baseball at large and the Indians clubhouse, I think, uh, as far as a performance way in a positive way. So uh, I, uh, I think if you're willing to, to deal with the distractions that might come with, with Twitter, uh, he will add value to your club. And I think that's what teams would most be looking at. And I'm glad you mentioned as far as him helping out with the other Cleveland Indians pitchers, because I also got the same feeling reading for the book. J.D. Martinez is the same way with the Boston Red Sox. And he is such a tremendous hitter. 
And it's also it, it quite impressive what how Mookie Betts evolved to becoming the American League MVP uh, last year in his performance. Do you think teams are going to add... I don't know how do you want to say it. Uh, when they approach players like J.D. Martinez or Trevor Bauer, either through trade or free agency, that these are going to be additional points that they would consider in acquiring these players when typically for fans and writers and podcasters, we would just look at their baseball reference stat sheet and be like, well, the reason why they should acquire him because he's worth this many wins above replacement, not considering what else they can add into the clubhouse. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, make the, the points in the book that they're almost like part-time coaches in addition to being good players. And the most valuable voice as far as selling a message in the clubhouse is probably a, a peer, right? Uh, you probably, if they're having success, you're probably most willing to listen to them even compared to, to someone you respect as a coach. So yeah, JD Martinez is such a great teacher. He's willing to, he wants to spread this message and he's helped out a lot of teammates. You look at what the Red Sox, uh, Xander Bogarts, uh, just down uh, bats obviously you look up and down the lineup last year and a lot of guys were better after they signed martinez and they also brought in tim hires as a new hitting coach who is very much in line with martinez's uh philosophy and beliefs but yeah martinez you know early in camp was you know, telling mookie betts what was wrong with his swing and some guys i give bets too for not putting his ego aside he was open-minded and wanted to get better and wanted to listen and martinez had some ideas for how he should better use his lower body lower half uh, and that's a powerful thing because it, I, I, we have some stories in the book, you know, Jack, Jack Morris not wanting to share his footer grip, I think, you know, back in the 80s. And uh, I think there was a component more so a couple of decades ago of, of veteran players not wanting to share information. Uh, but I think we're seeing less and less of that, uh, at least in our experience supporting this. And some of the guys from the front edge of this uh, want to share, and they're good teachers. Uh, I, mean, I don't – just in my experience with Bauer, I didn't know how to throw a curveball. <laughs> After I now have a very bad curveball. He explained <laughs> curveball grip, how you should lock your wrist. I, you know, he just changed the way I think about throwing a ball, and it made a lot of sense. It was like a more innate way to think about learning. Uh, and yeah, he, I now have a very bad curveball, but it does have at least a curveball spin access. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's great. He just has a very good way of, I think, explaining things and whatever people's opinions are and i understand these said very insensitive things he is uh, you know, he has a he has a wealth of base, baseball knowledge and he is he is a good teacher as we're seeing him among the indian staff so yeah it's uh but to your point yeah to have to add a player like martinez or bauer uh or justin turner uh yeah there's huge side benefits of doing that now back to cleveland also in the book it illustrates on how Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez, along with Mookie Betts, go from these undersized hitters to become to becoming sluggers. And even though Jose Ramirez is having a bad season in 2019, it appears that the secret to their formula is pulling more pitches in the air. Sure enough, the Minnesota Twins in 2019 are on pace to hit 308 home runs this season as a team because as a team, they're pulling the ball 40.3% of the time that leads Major League Baseball, and that's 3% more than last year. They increase their exit velocity by almost 3 miles per hour, and they have a crazy team launch angle of 15.1 degrees. And there is a line in the book from Pittsburgh Pirates manager Clint Hurdle that will stick with me forever with him saying, your OPS is in the air. <laughs> Should players and teams be focusing more on 
on pulling the ball in the air when it comes to development purposes, Travis? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but the problem is no one up until this point, I don't know about your playing career. Uh, I don't know when it ended, but I'm sure as a young player, uh, you were never taught to try to pull the ball in the air. I never was. It was hit low line drives back up the middle. Use go gap to get go gap to gap. Yep. And that's what every hitting coach has basically told every amateur hitter, every pro player for, you know, 120 years. Knocked a pitcher's head off. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just starting to, but the problem is that result is usually a single. And, you know, players like J.D. Martinez start to question, why is my best, why am I practicing hitting singles? It really doesn't make sense. Why should that be my, my strategy? So we're just beginning to change that. And uh, Jason Ochart, who, when we were, we were reporting the book, he was working at Driveline as their head of uh, hitting development. He's now working for the Phillies with the remaining attachment to Driveline. Uh, but he made this point, too, that, you know, pulling the ball, the best major league hitters can pull the ball in the air to their pull side. That's where most home runs and extra base hits are produced. You wanted that contact point out in front of the plate. But, of course, that's never been taught. So, you know, just in his experience working with hitters, it was a common weakness is most pulled balls are ground balls, and that's not a desirable outcome. So how do you change it? How do you teach that? I think the best teams offensively are beginning to do that. Uh, they're taking some of the things Turner and J.D. Martinez have done, Francisco Lindor, and they're trying to take them to scale, like the Minnesota Twins. Great example. And, uh, yeah, there's no doubt the ball is playing differently. Uh, it's more aerodynamic. Even baseball said that. But you look at teams like the Twins, you look at individuals like Lindor and the good version of Jose Ramirez, and it's not just the ball. I mean, they're changing how they attack, where they contact the ball. They're getting the ball up. And a ball in the air, especially the pool side, is the most valuable ball you can you can produce. And why it was never taught, why it took this long, is kind of baffling. Uh, why no one ever listened to Ted Williams is baffling. <laughs> but here we are, and it'll be interesting to see like the counterpunch that pitchers try to make, and this cat mouse game that makes baseball so great for every uh, game one uh, the hitters make, the pitchers punch back, and vice versa. And I think maybe we're seeing Jose Ramirez deal with a little bit. A little bit of that this year in Cleveland. Uh, yeah, it is fascinating. And I think, you know, you look at the Twins, and they're a great example. Uh, you know, we said the Dodgers and the Astros, but I, you look at what the Twins, who they hired this offseason, uh, hiring Wes Johnson to be their pitching coach straight out of Arkansas, the first uh, college to major league dugout jump in coaching in 40 years. You look at what they're teaching hitting-wise, they're trying to teach framing with another college coaching hire. They're very much all in on this idea and concept, and we're seeing real benefits. Uh, I mean, it's not just the offensive side. They're one of the most improved pitching staffs, and it, they give Martin Perez a new pitch, a cutter. Uh, they bump his velocity up. They go to easy much better. So they're just making guys better across the board, and that's the power of this movement. Yeah, I want the White Sox to hire Chris Fetter, the University of Michigan. <laughs> Uh, pitching coach after reading the book and seeing what Michigan has done during the college world series. He's just been tremendous. And I do wonder if that is going to be a new trend where more and more college coaches are going to be hired straight to the major leagues because colleges at sometimes are much better at developing, especially teenage baseball players than, than major league baseball clubs. Uh, we did have a fan question from Ed Casey, and I thought this was a really good question, Travis. Ed was asking, is there a piece of technology that you feel ball clubs are only beginning to scratch the surface with 
and will be an e- even bigger factor in player development going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. And I personally think it's still the, uh, the power of the edutronic is just coming online. Uh, and when you think about, when you pair that with the Rapsodo, which unlike TrackMan, it actually gives you the spin access of a, of a ball. So you understand what's, what spin type you're generating in movement. So when you pair the edutronic to see how you're actually releasing the ball in detail that his product became available, along with the Rapsodo, you have this great Rosetta Stone for pitch design. And you know, Bauer's at the forefront of this, the Astros are at the forefront of this. But when most teams, uh, they're just beginning to, and teams really begin to harness this and understand it, uh, pitch design science, I mean, what happens when most pitchers are able to, if not add a, a new breaking ball, improve their existing ones? If there's a critical mass of that that develops, you know, what, what's going to happen to strikeout rates? Uh, it's going to. Uh, so I think even though that was a prominent piece of technology in the book, it's still in its baseball infancy, and I think it has the most power to change the game. Uh, I do think others out of great technology entering on the hitting side, like, hitting side, like the K-Vest, like the Blast Motion, uh, hitting so little behind and kind of understanding how to build a better hitter. We're, we're making progress. The industry, industry's making progress. But uh, the pitching side's ahead, as it usually has been, because uh, I think in large part because the pitcher begins with the ball. They dictate the action, and a lot of the technology has been focused on pitch tracking. Uh, but, yeah, I, that's a great question. And, you know, we're going to see – we're always going to see technology gains and leaps. And one of the lessons in the book is, while in five years there will probably be all sorts of new technology that replaces some of this stuff, you know, the early adopters of people that really ask questions of, uh, could this make us better? They're, they're always going to have an advantage. Uh, so you want to be curious. You want to be a first adopter because there's always going to be cool new stuff come down the line. So then tying it back up to the White Sox, lastly, did teams like the White Sox who decided to go in this rebuild phase after the Chicago Cubs tore down and won the World Series in 2016 – are they in a tough spot right now, Travis, because of the teams like the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Astros, who are already great teams, have put in so much effort in the player development side, and they're getting great results that the teams that tore it down, like the White Sox, now even have more to overcome before they even started their rebuild? Yeah, it's an interesting thought, and it used to be a you know, it's you're either contending or you're rebuilding, and it's really hard to do both at the same time. Now the Dodgers and Astros are really challenging that idea. Uh, maybe you don't have to rebuild as dramatically, at least going forward. Uh, though there will probably always be a component of like buyers and sellers in baseball, but maybe you don't have to strip it down. I, I think you know the White Sox, uh, they did take a, a reasonable, rational approach, and. Yeah, they're behind at the major league level, but when you look at like the development of Giolito this year and even uh, Mancada, those are encouraging signs. They're getting players to be to be better, and those are the success stories they they need to continue to have, and uh, you know they need to make players better. Uh, and I think you know they probably I don't I'm not as familiar with the White Sox as I am some other uh, organizations that we reported on, but yeah, there's a ton of smart people in the front office. They're aware of things going on in the game, and. They're no doubt looking at the Dodgers and Astros as a model. So should White Sox fans be terrified of the Minnesota Twins in the next years? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would be looking at the Twins and being, these guys know, they have a head start. They know what they're doing. I think they got out of the gates a little quicker on this. But uh, yeah, there's a model to follow right in the division, I think. 
Uh, and I think we're going to see more college coaches hired in. And Derek Johnson was a Vanderbilt pitching coach a few years ago. Now he's in his first year as a Reds pitching coach. They have the greatest, I think, fifth in the ERA game. ERA gains in baseball. So there's another college guy having success. We're going to see uh, more of those. I think, you know, the idea of hiring a Michigan pitching coach is an inspired idea. And I do love that it's not about, did you play pro baseball? It's about what are your ideas? How do you teach? And I, I think that's important just as Moneyball took away the, the idea that you had to play pro baseball to work in the front office. Our book argues, you know, you don't have to play pro baseball to work anywhere in baseball, particularly coaching and player development uh, we want teams should want the best ideas, best people. Uh, and, you know, that's what the Twins, Astros, Dodgers have all been doing. You can buy the MVP machine at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. You can also read Travis's work. He frequent contributor at 538.com and The Athletic. And you can follow Travis on Twitter. He's at Travis underscore Sawchick. And Travis, again, I love this book. Terrific job with the book congratulations to all the early success that you guys have been getting it is well deserved and thank you so much for joining our show this was a lot of fun thanks for having us on and and supporting the book a quick word from our sponsor wix.com let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google and every site is automatically optimized for any device whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. We are going to play buy, sell, or hold in a moment, but joining us on the Sox Machine podcast is a good friend of the show. He's an MLB writer for Yahoo Sports. It's Chris Swick. And hello, Chris. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me again. I always enjoy doing it. Now, you made the excellent choice of moving back to Chicago from the Pacific Northwest. Correct. But you brought the weather with you. I'm getting a bit stir crazy with it being in the mid 60s in late June. Yeah, see, I'm totally used to this. My a friend of mine, uh, he texted me the same thing, basically saying this is the worst weather we've had in a while, and <laughs> I just completely disagree. This is wonderful for me. Once it's 95, uh, I'll probably be miserable again. Oh yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> me too. I'd be miserable as well. But uh, <laughs> it's the summertime. It's it's a bit not normal abnormal i should say uh with the uh, with the feeling but no it's great to have you back in chicago it's great to have you back on the show there are two national baseball stories that i want to discuss with you before playing buy sell and hold and number one maybe the craziest idea for a team i have heard in a long time as reported by jeff passett of espn.com 
the Tampa Bay Rays have received permission for Major League Baseball to explore the idea of splitting their homes between St. Petersburg, Florida, and Montreal. First, on a scale of 1 to 10, how insane is this idea, Chris? I mean, it, it's off that scale. We're talking <laughs> like in the millions. I, I really think this is the dumbest thing I've heard in, I don't know, in a long time. Um, there are just so many potential issues here. Um, I mean, I guess I could get into them specifically, but, uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with players having to play in two different cities. Um, how will that work out as far as contracts go? Because you're also dealing with two different countries. Uh, what happens if this Rays team makes the postseason? Who gets to host those, those games? Is it Montreal? Because that's where they'll be playing. Is it Tampa Bay? What about all your normal employees? What, what about the people in the front office, the people who run the scoreboard? Are they, are they just working a portion of the season now? Are they expected to to go there? So yeah, I, I, I don't. None of this makes sense, and and honestly, all of it strikes me as uh, more of a bargaining chip for Tampa Bay to to try and flex that, or I'm sorry, for the Rays to try and flex that they're serious about leaving Tampa Bay, St. Petersburg, and trying to put pressure on local government government there to say, oh, no, 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 don't do this. Wait, we'll we'll give you the stadium offer you want and we'll keep you long term. Yeah, because the stadium lease expires by 2027. The mayor of St. Petersburg has already came out and said publicly that he thinks this idea is a bit silly. And I, I think everyone in baseball agrees with the mayor. But between St. Petersburg and the Rays, they've been trying to work out a deal, sounds like for 10 years, nothing uh, has been formalized to build a new stadium for the Rays. I could see Major League Baseball getting impatient. And now you have the beat reporters for the Rays consistently making comments on how low attendance is at their games. Despite if the season ended today, Chris, they would host a postseason game. Uh, they would be hosting the wild card game, the one game playoff. Uh with this idea, and now this becoming public, if you want a new stadium, you need something formalized in three to four seasons, I think, for the race to stay in St. Petersburg because of the time it takes to build a new stadium. So is that the time frame we are looking at uh, with this ticking clock between the Rays and the city of St. Petersburg, Florida? That I would say that seems fairly accurate to me. Um yeah, I guess I don't have a great sense of, of where this goes now because I know that the mayor already uh, shot down the, the idea of the Rays talking to Montreal. So basically, I, I think it's kind of a standoff at this point where government is saying, you're going to just deal with us, and the Rays are saying, well, you can see we already wanted to go somewhere else, so we really don't want to do that. And so, yeah, I think if if you... If you give them three to four years, like that would be the point where one side has to blink or else the Rays are probably leaving. And honestly, right now, just based on how the St. Petersburg government has acted, like I, I have no idea if, if they really want to keep the Rays or if they just view this as um, a much more 
cumbersome project or idea because I guess I guess we also don't know exactly what the raised demands are and how much money they want taxpayers to put into a stadium. So all, all of that complicates this issue. Right. And I think the mayor is looking at it from perspective of trying to protect the citizens of St. Petersburg mm-hmm. from having this exorbitant cost added uh, and having to fund this stadium that maybe the citizens aren't really interested in funding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I feel like that's a big part of it, too. The the, the whole attendance issue, um, you know, part, part of that is maybe where the team is located and maybe how they've operated and let some of their big name stars walk in the past. Uh, maybe that has turned people off. Uh, maybe there's just not enough interest to support a team in the area. So I, I do think that, you know, if, if this was uh, a really popular team that sells out all the time, uh, maybe this would be a completely different story and, and you would expect St. Petersburg to fight for them. But this is the raise we're talking about and there's just not a ton of interest in that area for the team. I think for all parties involved, Major League Baseball, the Rays franchise, and St. Petersburg, Florida, I think it's best to have the Rays move to Montreal. I just feel like that's going to be the ultimate move of what happens, but I think that's the best move for everyone involved. So St. Petersburg doesn't have to have this this fight, this eight-year fight uh, when the stadium lease expires, uh, the Rays then can move to Montreal and have that be their new home, a, a market that is thirsty to have baseball back. And for baseball itself, maybe an uptick in attendance, but also the Montreal Expos are much closer to New York and Boston. Then you have a sparking rivalry within this, the country of Canada with the Toronto Blue Jays in the same division if they wanted to. I just think this this is the best move for all parties involved is to move the race to Montreal. What would be a reasonable timeline for something like that to happen, Chris? Well, that that's also a tough question. I know on Montreal's side, they, they've had investors really looking into how they could make this work, how they could bring baseball back. So I, I think there are tentative plans for at least a, a stadium site now, I think there's probably some hoops to jump through before that stadium gets built. And I don't know that Montreal would do that without the promise of a team. But on their end, a lot has been working in the right direction. So I, w- I would like to think maybe it could happen sooner than um, than most teams, really, or than most cities that, that don't have an MLB team. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're dealing with, you know, getting approvals and then getting something built and then figuring out logistics. And so... I think like we were saying before, like this is a, a multi-year thing that um, would probably need to be put in the works. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to give at least four years, probably more for, the, for it all to come together, considering they currently don't have a, a place to play, really. So I think I agree with you. 2023 is the year to circle on the calendar. Either the Rays have a plan to build a new stadium that could take – a year and a half to two years to build, or they got to start planning to move to Montreal. It's disappointing if you're a Rays fan. You're having such a good season, and now this plops on your lap. Uh, I can't imagine right now what they are going through. Uh, For Major League Baseball, the second big storyline, right now the league is on pace to hit 509 more home runs 
in 2019 than in 2018, which would, again, shatter the league record. Rob Manfred has said that it could be due to the balls having less drag. So, Chris, how do the baseballs being used in Major League Baseball have less drag? So, it's basically, it's a change with how they are being manufactured. Um, Major League Baseball... The balls were previously manufactured by a different company. They switched a few years back, and we first started to see that something was maybe a little different in 2017 um, when the record was set. Just there were so many home runs hit, and people smart people smarter than I were curious about it and looked into it, and um, they determined that at some point in the manufacturing process, something was was maybe just a little different or a little off. And that impacted the the drag. So what that means uh, for people who maybe aren't studying this type of stuff uh, is basically less drag means the ball is going to travel farther when it's in the air. And it doesn't take much of a change. So in 2017, MLB's big thing coming out and talking about the ball was um, the ball is within the range of specifications that that we deem acceptable. So they have this range um, and and the ball has to meet that standard. The problem is that range was kind of, as people found out, was laughably large. So yes, technically the balls were being made to MLB's standard, but it, they were still different enough that it was causing these, these extreme results. And so that, that brings us now to, to 2019 where we're having similar issues, but it's kind of been taken to the, to the next level as far as drag and as far as this home run barrage. So that is, is kind of uh, the, the fastest way I feel like I can <laughs> describe the situation right now. Um, that's why you're seeing 7 billion home runs hit every night. As you noted in your article in Yahoo Sports, Major League Baseball owns Rawlings. That makes the baseball... Yes. Do you see the league making changes to the ball in the near future to reduce home runs? Yeah. This, I have no idea because in 2017, after that year, we saw home runs really de- decrease in 2018. Um, they were down um, in, in the 5,000s. I think it was 5,500-something 5, home runs, uh, which is still high uh, compared to the history of the game and, and maybe compared to five years ago, um, but was a – pretty large drop from 2017. So it seemed like if Major League Baseball, it, it was either intentional on their part, right, to, to get back to what the old balls were, um, or I don't know, or, or they, you know, were, or it was just kind of a, a fluky type thing. I mean, I, I would think that something would have had to go into it to, to see that much of a decrease, but then that doesn't explain why we are now seeing the complete opposite in 2019. So I, I guess this is basically basically me saying in 2018, we did see a decrease and it, and it, it seems to me like Major League Baseball probably has something to do with that. But then now that it's gone back up, I, I don't know. I mean, 2020 could really be, could go either way to me. We could see the same exact thing uh, or we could see them quietly make the changes necessary to see home runs fall back down again. I feel like it would be tough for them to do that quietly, Chris, because as well, soon as you well, see the trend. Oh, so, you know what? You're, you're right. I mean, now they can't because they've actually acknowledged it. In 2017, it, it felt a little more 
quiet. Um, they, they had commissioned a study and I don't feel like many people really followed the, the story as much. So, you know, if they had made changes in 2019, like, like we don't know about them publicly right now. So I, I guess that's where I think maybe it would be secretive. I, I guess at this point, is it, is it a big enough story that MLB would have to address? Uh, yes, we've <laughs> figured out the problem. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Now back to the Chicago White Sox. It's time to play buy, sell, or hold. If you didn't catch last week's show, buy means trading for a player before July 31st, whether to help the White Sox now or maybe a longer view into the future, trading for a player with a controllable contract. Sell is plan on moving veterans for more prospects in which they have done the last two deadlines or hold, do neither, and currently maintain the team as is. We are now just five weeks away from the July 31st trade deadline, and the White Sox are still in rebuilding mode, but you can envision if you squint just hard enough uh, that they are turning a corner soon. And if you were in charge of the White Sox, Chris, and let's say you replace Rick Hahn as the general manager, would you buy, sell, or hold before the trade deadline? I would probably sell. I think it just makes the most sense. They they clearly have taken some positive steps forward. I, I think maybe I could see how people are tempted by looking at a weak American League and, and thinking maybe you could sneakily buy and kind of get yourself in the conversation. But I, I just think after missing out on some premier free agents in the offseason, that just kind of tells me that you have to probably play for next year. And on some level it makes sense because you're a lot more appealing in the offseason to free agents now that Lucas Giolito is pitching like an ace and uh, Yohan Moncada had shown that, that really promising start to the year. I know he's he's fallen off a little bit, but you'd like to think that's still in in his uh, tool bag moving forward. So yeah, I think I think you do that you you try and build pieces for the future and you try to be aggressive on, on the market this off season and, and supplement those guys. And you get Dylan Cease to the majors and you get Michael Kopech back. And ideally you can be a dark horse contender in 2020. Who do you think the White Sox could sell? Who do you think are some players that other teams would want? Yeah, this is where it gets difficult because some of the guys they took shots on have not panned out well. Um, and, and I guess Wellington, Wellington Castillo is not part of that, but he's just been so bad this year that it's, it's tough to imagine they'd get much for him. Um, you know, Yonder Alonso, I know a lot has been made about his struggles. So you, you're really like, I, what are you doing with James McCann, I guess? I mean, that would be kind of an interesting one, although um, he legitimately could be their all-star this season. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but, but I do think, you know, you look at the history of what he's done, and if you're not going to buy into it, um, it certainly makes sense for them to sell off, especially because you have Zach Collins, who you've billed as the catcher of the future for a while now. That makes sense. Um, I, I also think you, you're probably looking at, just any useful piece in the bullpen, um, whether or not maybe you think they're going to be useful next year. If they're not under contract for all that long, you might as well see if anyone's willing to bite on them. Uh, and I'm, and I'm looking, 
you know, at, at the rotation and I mean, Ivan Nova really nothing to write home about. So I, yeah, I feel like you're really limited to maybe like McCann and some relievers, um, which is not maybe the best answer and maybe doesn't bring you back really talented players. But if you can get something that you believe in that can be on a 25 man roster that wins a division, that's a, a major win. There are some White Sox fans that feel if they could trade Alex Colomay, they can get a really promising prospect. As we have seen in the past with teams really um, buying high on relievers, like the Indians getting Andrew Miller. They sent Clint Frazier over to the Yankees. The Yankees also getting Glaber Torres uh, for a Raldus Chapman. Uh, do you see Alex Colomay bring back a big haul like that? I, I don't. Uh, I think, first off, I, I don't think Colomay's in the same class as, as either of those two guys when they were dealt. I also think we've seen a big shift the last few seasons in what guys are, are fetching um, at, at the trade deadline. So maybe it's a little different because Colomay will not be a free agent after this season, but a guy like Manny Machado in that trade, the, the Orioles really didn't get like a stud impact guy. They got, I think four or five players, um, none of which are considered elite prospects. So I, I almost feel like the league has, has gotten a little conservative when it comes to making those short term deals. And again, while column is under contract next season, um, he's also a reliever and, and maybe not the best one who will be on the market. So I, I guess I'm expecting kind of a, a lesser return there. We know Madison Bumgarner and Marcus Stroman are going to be the two big targets teams will try a trade for before July 31st. Again, we're five weeks away before the deadline. We've already seen the Yankees make a pretty significant move, getting Edwin Encarnacion. Uh, want to make any guesses on where these two could possibly end up? I really feel like the Brewers need one of them. Be, um, the you know the the Brewers they they currently rank twentieth in their rotation ERA. Um, they they could just use a guy they know can go six innings every time out there and solidify that rotation. I mean, I, I, I they're they're a really talented team. Clearly, they made the playoffs last year. The, the NL Central is tough. I, I just feel like they need that extra arm or two to make a push. Other than that. You know, I, I still kind of look at the Braves as a team that could use extra rotation help, mostly because a lot of the, the guys they're depending on are young. So at a certain point, you maybe wonder about innings limits and how you're going to keep your guys healthy if you're going to be pitching into October. So I think even though they're going to get Dallas Keuchel back, I, I still feel like they could use maybe another veteran to take some innings off the young guy's arms, keep everybody fresh. Um, I mean, those are really the two like big standouts to me. I, I'm sure that uh, you know a team like the Yankees will probably get involved because they just always seem to be involved. Um, and I mean, could you make the case for the Cubs? I mean, they they've seen some drop off. They have some injuries right now. Um, they certainly could. I, I think you know pitching has been starting pitching has been kind of the the big question with them the last year or two. Um, just relying on guys who have shown signs of decline or older guys. And so, yeah, I, 
I think you could make the case for them. I think you could make the case, honestly, for like 28 teams uh, to, to go in on another starter and really another reliever. So, yeah, it's not hard to find landing spots for either player. You can follow Chris on Twitter. He's at Chris underscore Swick, and you can read his excellent work on Yahoo Sports. He also has a podcast covering Major League Baseball on Yahoo Sports, along with Hannah Kaiser and Tim Brown. It's a great show. It's part of my weekly playlist. And as always, Chris, thanks for coming back on the Sox Machine podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me, and thanks for saying nice things about the podcast. Uh, we're, we're still kind of in the early process, but I, I really do appreciate that. Now it's time for the minor league reports. And let's start in Charlotte, where the Knights have resumed killing the baseball. Daniel Polka has hit safely in 13 of his last 14 games, including 10 extra base hits. Danny Mendek has hit safely in 11 of his last 12 games, raising his OPS over 800. Also, while the Knights lost Zach Collins, they gained another offensive first catcher in the form of Yerman Mercedes. Mercedes is 26 years old. He's under six feet tall and he runs like a catcher. So he can't really be moved anywhere else. Still, he hit 323 and slugging just under 500 at Birmingham. So he's worth watching. He's two for eight in his first two games in Charlotte and both of those hits are doubles. Dylan Cease has now struggled for four consecutive starts, and the rest of the Charlotte pitching staff is so thin that Odrisimer Despagne actually looked like the best non-Cease possible solution at the time. Kyle Kubat could change it if he could post a few decent outings and he took a step in the right direction after surviving his AAA debut. Down in Birmingham, Luis Roberts' three-game homer streak came to an end on Sunday, but he's still 8-for-18 to open the second half. He's hitting 315 with an on-base percentage of 358, selecting 536 in a very difficult environment for hitters, and the strikeout rate is coming down as well. Blake Rutherford's on a little bit of a hot streak as well. He's got 10 hits over his last seven games. His numbers on the season are still awful. It's a 618 OPS, but it's two points higher than Luis Gonzalez and one point lower than Luis Basabe. So he's no longer lagging behind a lagging field. With Kyle Kubat getting promoted to Charlotte, there really isn't a pitcher to watch on Birmingham's staff. You really don't want to watch Alec Hansen right now. He's faced 11 batters over his last two outings, and he's only retired one of them. Winston-Salem is still the White Sox's most successful affiliate, even though the Dash had the system's most nondescript roster. Their pitching staff did get a boost with the additions of Jonathan Stever and Andrew Perez, which helped supplement, uh, supplement a Connor Pinkleton who alternates between mediocre and dominant. Down in Kannapolis, it's probably time to write off Luis Curbelo, who is 1-for-14 with 11 strikeouts over his last four games. That gives him 105 strikeouts over just 64 games, which explains why his OPS is threatened to dip under 500. He signed for overslot value in the sixth round of the 2016 draft and can no longer blame injuries for his lack of traction, especially since he's repeating Kannapolis and played better there last year. On the flip side, Davis Martin has lowered his ERA by two runs over his last five outings, four of which have been quality starts or better. The Great Falls Voyagers offense is off to a more encouraging start with Kelvin Mondonado and Sam Abbott showing signs of life after struggling in the Arizona Rookie League last year. Harvin Mendoza seems to have the most advanced plate discipline of anybody, good for about a walk a game with progressing power as well. The latter is more important to his prospect stock because he's been stuck at first base ever since his DSL days. 
And speaking of the DSL, DJ Gladney appears to be a guy worth watching early in the season. He's a product of the White Sox ace program. They signed him for big money in the 16th round to lure him away from a scholarship to Western Kentucky. And the video clips of his contact have been impressive. Entering Sunday, he was hitting 273 with four of his six hits going for extra bases. He's also struck out nine times in 22 at-bats, so sharpening his hit tool appears to be the first task at hand. That's been your Minor League Reports. Now it's time for your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where we answer your questions in P.O. Socks, which you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them at Socks Machine, posting them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, and of course, helping support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And with Jim enjoying his weekend away, I will be answering your guys' questions this week. And looking at the mailbag, you are doing me no favors with any easy questions. Love the tough ones. Uh, but let's have a let's have an open conversation about some of these questions. And this first one is a dandy from our good friend Beefloaf at section 108. And Beefloaf is asking, with the emergence of some of the new smarter front offices led by the Houston Astros and Los Angeles Dodgers, again, going back to the conversation we just had with Travis Sawchick and the MVP machine. Do you think the Kenny Williams-led White Sox teams of a decade ago actually had a better chance competitively than the current Rick Hahn-led White Sox, top prospects or not? And Beefloaf, I find this question uh, to be quite tough to answer. And initially thinking... I don't know, but when you really break it down as far as trying to remember the Kenny Williams-led White Sox teams, man, fans dog him on his inability to develop players from the Major League Baseball draft, but they frequently forget that while he did have some free agent bombs like Adam Dunn, Kenny Williams, for the most part, was successful via free agency. And Kenny Williams, for the most part, hit more on trades than he lost. I think the only thing you could really nail on him is not being able to develop his draftees, which is a bit funny because Kenny Williams was the director of player development before becoming a general manager. But going back to the conversation we just had with Travis Ochek, the advantage moving forward when you are comparing teams in Major League Baseball is their ability to teach, is their ability to unlock secrets in player development to take a player that might be good and make him better or find this diamond in the rough, maybe a 38th round draft pick that nobody's even heard of or gave them a chance. And then all of a sudden they're a fixture in your starting rotation, consistently throwing 200 innings a season, throwing a no hitter in a perfect game. Someone like Mark Burley, Kenny Williams had a lot of success on the player development front. Maybe you can, you know, consider that luck, uh, and later in his tenure, he wasn't so good on developing the draft picks after they were having multiple winning seasons, winning a World Series, and again, winning the American League Central in 2008. And maybe that's where his largest fault is, is that he didn't give Rick Hahn much to work with when they made that transition. 
But with Rick Hahn, he's a completely different person than Kenny Williams. Again, Kenny Williams is director of player development. He understood what the players had to go through, being an ex-player himself. He understood the lingo and the clubhouse. He can communicate at their level, and he can give them insights and maybe some critiques that they would take to heart because he's been there. Rick Hahn can't do that. Rick Hahn's a lawyer. He's a contract lawyer who is very good at his job helping Kenny Williams get deals signed with players like Paul Konerko and A.J. Pruszynski to keep him in Chicago. He was hired to become the general manager, promoted, I should say, when Kenny Williams was also promoted, to take over those duties. And I think Rick Hahn learned a lot of painful lessons in 2015 and 2016. I don't think Rick Hahn knows anything about player development. I think that's why he hired Chris Getz, and he has Chris Getz handle all of that. And it's up to Chris Getz to develop all these top prospects. And that's why it's up to Nick Hostetler to find these top prospects to go and draft. And why it's up to Marco Patti to go and find players in the international pipeline. It's a much different process. It's more of a hierarchy if you want to look at it where those three report to Rick Hahn, then Rick Hahn tries to make the final decision informing Kenny Williams and Jerry Reinsdorf on what his plans are, what the blueprint is, and what their actions are moving forward. I don't know if this hierarchy is going to work because I feel like the field goal posts are moving in Major League Baseball. And after reading the MVP machine, I'd be very worried if the White Sox will ever be able to build a team like the Houston Astros. And while we can rave about Luis Robert, hey, he's the fifth-ranked prospect. Did you see who's ranked ninth, 10th, and 11th? Oh, three Houston Astros players. And where's Houston in the American League standings? They're probably the favorite to win the American League pennant and go back to the World Series. So you're trying to convince me that the White Sox and their rebuild are suddenly going to build a team that's as strong as the Houston Astros, who already have a leg up on the White Sox, and they are known to be the most innovative team in Major League Baseball, a team that people are now hiring away their front office staff to take over the Baltimore Orioles and the Atlanta Braves to copycat them? Would it be different under Kenny Williams? Maybe not, but I think Kenny Williams would have taken advantage of the past two years in the free agency market. And I know we make fun of it all the time. Like signing Mike Moustakis, we would say that's totally a Kenny Williams move. But Mike Moustakis is playing pretty well for the Milwaukee Brewers at the moment. And the White Sox definitely have a need at second base as Yomer Sanchez, he, he can glove it, but his bat has disappeared again. And the White Sox need more help offensively as they have three black holes in the lineup. So I wonder, while everything is so calculated in Major League Baseball, would a Kenny Williams type be a disruption in the flow on how teams operate? And would that give the White Sox an advantage rather than trying to play catch up, which is what they are currently doing? That's where it's tough, Beef Loaf. So ultimately, with all that being said, can the mid-2000s White Sox strategy work today? I guess I would say I don't know. I don't know if they would be in a better position. I do think the team would look a lot different uh, than the Rickon team uh, that's designed that we're watching right now. Uh, And I think without a doubt, 
Kenny Williams would have not been this patient and maybe Luis Robert would be in the lineup right now. Maybe Nick Magical would be in the lineup right now. I'm pretty positive Dylan Cease would be in the pitching rotation. So if you're a White Sox fan that wants to see these prospects right now in Chicago, you definitely see them. Or maybe even worse, he would have traded them already uh, for some veterans to constantly be competitive year in and year out. Uh, so it really depends on your flavor. I'm sure the the fans that love Rick Hahn would say, no way, Rick Hahn is definitely leading the White Sox on the right path. Uh, I am not 100% certain on that. And I think the teams that are going to be successful in the new major leagues, and new major league baseball, I should say, are the ones that understand player development. And they understand the grind that goes through in the minor leagues on what the players have to do on a day-to-day basis and add that into the advanced analytics that are out there, the data from TrackMan, and try to piece it together and try to piece together drills to enhance those skills. And I can tell you, Kenny Williams would be much better at that than Rick Hahn. So B-Flow, thank you very much for your question. Uh, it was a doozy. But the other questions that we have in the mailbag from Matt. Matt is asking, if you DFA Alonzo and demote Ryan Cordell and Charlie Tilson and add Daniel Polka, uh, would you get a much more fun lineups? All right, let me try to quickly answer this one. John Jay right now in Charlotte is hitting 358 with a 382 on base percentage, slugging 396. In 13 games, he's got two doubles, no home runs. Hitting a bouncy ball in the most hitter-friendly ballpark in all of the International League, and he can only manage two doubles, that's a big red flag for me. I wonder if he has no pop in his bat and he's just a singles hitter, which, is that better than Charlie Tilson? I think we're going to find out. I think John Jay can play defense better than Charlie Tilson, so there you would have an upgrade, but I don't think it's that big of an upgrade between John Jay and Tilson. As a matter of fact, those that cover the Chicago Cubs thought John Jay was toast when Jay was with the Cubs, and it was just a dead cat bounce that he had with the Kansas City Royals. So there you go. If you are already concerned about Yonder Alonso, I think we may be concerned with John Jay when he joins the White Sox. Sebi Zavala, 50-grade power, 40-grade contact. He's hitting 240, 277 on base percentage, but he's slugging 500. When he makes contact and he puts the ball in play, it goes far. But that's the problem. He doesn't make enough contact right now in AAA. I would not call him up. Daniel Polka, though, is hitting 280 with a 378 on base percentage, slugging 564. His strikeout rate is only 22.9%. He's walking 14% of the time, so that's good. He's got a 284 ISO, so his slugging is terrific. He's got 16 home runs in 56 games. Out of these three players, Matt, I would say call up Daniel Polka and see if the adjustments that he's made in AAA uh, are going to stick in the major leagues and add another bat in that lineup that's got a little bit more power yeah you could debate and argue well Josh he doesn't make enough contact we saw that early in the year we could just say maybe that's a bad month because again when we talked about Yonder Alonso do you remember his numbers against right-handed pitching he can't hit it all either so your choice you want to keep seeing Yonder Alonso or do you want to give Daniel Polka a second shot so I'd say give Polka a second shot 
Uh, Matt, I, I still don't think those are very fun lineups <laughs> uh, for the White Sox. If you called up those players, I still think you got some black holes uh, in, in that lineup, not being able to produce a lot offensively. I am concerned about the lack of power from John Jay. I'm concerned about the lack of contact for Sebi Zavala. Uh, but sure, let's bring back Daniel Polka and see if those adjustments in AAA are for real. But thanks for your question, Matt. Our next question comes from Gukas Leogito. And Gukas is asking, do you have any thoughts on Omar Vizquel and Justin Jershley's first halves at the higher levels? Well, I'll start with the good news. I think Justin Jershley got a lot out of the Winston-Salem dash, especially after they lost Luis Robert and Nick Magical with promotions. The dash ended up finishing 38 and 26 offensively as a team they hit 255 with a 344 on base percentage and they slugged 399 compare that to 2018 for the entire season for the dash and the dash hit 273 as a team with a 341 on base percentage and slugging 414 so a little bit lower on the contact and power side and the pitching is pretty comparable they have a team era of 3.82 right now in 2019 last year in 2018 they had a 3.66 ERA, but I would say that the talent was much better last year in the Winds of Salem Dash. Uh, despite the Dash starting with Luis Robert and Nick Magical this season, they also had Robert and Magical at the end of the 2018 season. I just feel that Justin Jershley is getting a lot more out of his players in high A uh, than Omar Vizquel is getting out of his players in Birmingham. The Barons are 28 and 45. As a team, they're hitting 249 with a 315 on base percentage. They're slugging 352. And they have the worst ERA in the Southern League at 4.38. This is incredibly disappointing because when you look at the roster for the Birmingham Barons, they have 11 of the White Sox top 30 prospects on that team. They should be performing much better. And Out of that 11, they just got Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal. And those two are performing very well. And they're making Luis Gonzalez, Blake Rutherford, Gavin Sheets look really bad (laughs) with the performance that they are putting up in the first couple of weeks that they are double A compared to the first half those guys have gone through. It really raises a ton of questions about the, the strength of the White Sox farm system and the depth. I don't think Omar Vizquel is getting the most out of these players. There seems to be a disconnect right now in performance that I would throw a red flag on and wonder if Omar Vizquel is as good of a manager as we thought he was last year with the Winston-Salem Dash. I feel like Justin Jersley is doing a better job with the Dash and player development, and we're starting to see as far as that progress at high A in the Carolina League, more progress Uh, We're probably seeing a lot of regression right now in Birmingham. And Omar Vizquel is having a very difficult job uh, trying to slow down that regression and try to get these players to turn around and start performing a lot better. And there's a lot of White Sox fans that think that Omar Vizquel is going to be the next manager for the White Sox. Based on how the 2019 Birmingham Barons season is going, uh, I'm not, I'm jumping off that boat. I would not want Omar Vizquel to be the next manager of the Chicago White Sox because I don't think he's doing a very good job with the talent that he does have in AA. I, it would be a concern what he would be doing with the Chicago White Sox in the major league. So, Gukas, thank you so much for your question. 
and great questions from everyone this week in P.O. Socks. Thank you guys so much for submitting questions. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, again, you could follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And again, help support the site and the show at patreon.com slash socks machine. Our supporters get additional content with every single podcast. It's ad free. They get an opportunity to ask questions to our guests in which the guests uh, will answer those questions, much like PO socks that only our Patreon supporters will be able to listen to in their special podcast feed. And they also get to ask additional PO socks questions every single week that we answer. Jim has his month in a box and we're going to have more content exclusively just for our patreon supporters so if you like our work at socksmachine.com and you want more from us go to patreon.com slash socksmachine to sign up today and that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast thank you to jim from calling in from his uh, weekend getaway thank you to travis sawchick the author of mvp machine for joining and chris swick from yahoo sports If you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.